Job chapter 1, and reading from verse 1. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job, and that man was blameless and upright, one who feared God and turned away from evil. There were born to him seven sons and three daughters. He possessed 7,000 sheep, 3,000 camels, 500 yoke of oxen, and 500 female donkeys, and very many servants, so that this man was the greatest of all the people of the East. His sons used to go and hold a feast in the house of each one on his day, and they would send and invite their three sisters to eat and drink with them. And when the days of the feast had run their course, Job would send and consecrate them, and he would rise early in the morning and offer burnt offerings according to the number of them all. For Job said, it may be that my children have sinned and cursed God in their hearts. Thus Job did continually. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them. The Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You have blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. But stretch out your hand and touch all that he has and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, all that he has is in your hand. Only against him do not stretch out your hand. So Satan went out from the presence of the Lord. Now there was a day when his sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And there came a messenger to Job and said, The oxen were plowing and the donkeys feeding beside them. And the Sabaeans fell upon them and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. While he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The fire of God fell from heaven and burned up the sheep and the servants and consumed them, and I have alone have escaped to tell you. When he was yet speaking, there came another and said, The Chaldeans formed three groups and made a raid on the camels and took them and struck down the servants with the edge of the sword, and I alone have escaped to tell you. And while he was yet speaking, there came another and said, Your sons and daughters were eating and drinking wine in their oldest brother's house. And behold, a great wind came across the wilderness and struck the four corners of the house, and it fell upon the young people, and they are dead. And I alone have escaped to tell you. Then Job arose and tore his clothes and shaved his head and fell on the ground and worshipped. And he said, Naked I came from my mother's womb and naked shall I return. 
The Lord gave and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. In all this, Job did not sin or charge God with wrong. Again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. And the Lord said to Satan, From where have you come? And Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro on the earth, and from walking up and down on it. And the Lord said to Satan, Have you considered my servant Job, that there is none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man, who fears God and who turns away from evil? He still holds fast his integrity, although you incited me against him to destroy him without reason. Then Satan answered the Lord and said, Skin for skin, all that a man has he will give for his life. But stretch out your hand and touch his bone and flesh, and he will curse you to your face. And the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your hand, only spare his life. And so Satan went out from the presence of the Lord and struck Job with loathsome sores from the sore of his feet to the crown of his head. And he took a piece of broken pottery with which to scrape himself while he sat in the ashes. Then his wife said to him, Do you still hold fast your integrity? Curse God and die. But he said to her, You speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God, and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Well, amen, and may God really speak with clarity and power and help to us from this passage of Scripture. Hey. This is the beginning of a new series. As Robin said, we're going to be looking through the book of Job uh, for 10 weeks. This is not going to be easy. This is going to be difficult. Uh, This is a very difficult book to understand. Uh, This is a very difficult book because of the content that is contained within it. We are going to sit down with a man who is broken, with a man who has lost everything, with a man who is suffering greatly, and we're going to spend 10 weeks with him as he tries to work out why he is suffering. Let me tell you why we desperately need the book of Job, because that doesn't sound like the most appealing advert for it. Um, we, we desperately need this book in our church and in our lives because there is nothing, there's almost nothing more inevitable in life than suffering. If you live long enough, you will suffer. If you live long enough, you will bleed. And when you do your faith in God will be shaken, sometimes right to the core. We need to be ready to suffer because suffering for Jesus and for his followers uh, is not an optional extra. In fact, Jesus almost seems to imply that it's necessary uh, that we are to pick up our cross daily and follow him. The path of following Jesus is a path of suffering. So we need to be ready for when suffering does hit in our lives because it will if you're a Christian. And we need to know how we're going to tackle this massive issue, which the book of Job deals with. I I am convinced that there is no work of literature in the history of humanity that deals with the topic of suffering with such emotional honesty, 
with such intellectual credibility and with such wise counsel as the book of Job. It asks questions of suffering that we may ask as, uh, as Christians that we often ask. Um, Christopher Ashe, who is a, a minister down south, he wrote an amazing commentary on the book of Job. He wrote an amazing book uh, called Out of the Storm, which I would strongly recommend to everyone here if they want to understand Job and if they want to really get into this book. And he talks about the two different kinds of uh, why questions that we ask when we're suffering. There's the questions that the philosophers ask, and there's the questions that the sufferers ask. Uh, Christopher phrases it like this. There's two types of questions, armchair questions and wheelchair questions when it comes to suffering. The book of Job is written for the latter. It's written for those who are going to suffer and for those who are in the depths of suffering. It is an essential book. So here's what, uh, here's what the one thing I hope that we'll get as a church from studying the book of Job, the one resource that we desperately need if we are to endure and hold fast to God and to the gospel through suffering, and that is wisdom. That is what the book of Job is designed to teach us, wisdom. Wisdom is what we need. Wisdom uh, in the Bible is not just about making the right decisions, though that is part of it. Wisdom is about having a right understanding of the world that we live in and the God who governs and created this world. Job, if you read this book, it will not give you inner peace and comfort to help you through suffering. It will not act as a a soothing balm to numb the pains that you may feel in your life. Rather, the book will urge us to use our wisdom, and that is what will keep us going through the darkness. So that's what I hope we'll get as as we look at this book. This is essential. This is difficult. This is hard, um, but we need it. It is necessary if we are to live a life that is faithful to the gospel. Um, So let's begin by looking at these opening chapters. The book is essentially a massive, it's an epic poem. It's one of the most beautifully written pieces in the entire Bible. But it's bookended by these two narrative accounts that give a context for the poetry that takes up the vast majority of it. Um, Let's look at this. Let me pray before we look at this uh, for God's help, because we need God's help as we look at this difficult part of Scripture. Father, thank you that you have given to us this amazing book, that we can learn from, that as the book of James says, we can learn from Job about how to be steadfast and patient in suffering. We can learn from the book of Job about your love and your compassion. Father, we need this. Father, there are some of us here who need this right now, tonight, because they are suffering. There are some of us here who suffering will be coming to us and we need this. We need your wisdom. So, my Father, I pray that uh, we would see something of Jesus in this passage, that you would give us wisdom to understand you, that you would give us wisdom to understand this very complex issue of suffering. And, Father, that that wisdom would be able to sustain us and hold us until we are at last with you, free from all suffering and pain. So, Father, speak to us. Tonight we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Well, I've got an outline on your service sheet that um, picks up on, I think, the three main points that come out of this opening section. And they're three very important points because they carry through all the poetry that we'll see later on in the book. The author wants us to see from the onset, firstly, the integrity and the blamelessness of Job. Secondly, that Job's suffering was a test. And thirdly, he wants us to recognize the anguish and the pain that Job faced in his suffering. So firstly then, let's look at the integrity of Job. Uh, This is the major point in these opening chapters. Verse 1 to 5, it paints a a very idyllic scene. Uh, Job is described as a man who is blameless and upright. It doesn't mean that that Job was sinless, that Job was perfect. Um, Job later in the book will talk about how no one can be sinless before God. Rather, what it means is that Job was a man that was full of integrity. What you saw was what you got with Job when you met him. He was an honest man. He's a good man. He fears God. He turns away from evil. Job is the the kind of Christian, think about maybe somebody in your head, the kind of Christian who has walked so faithfully with Jesus for so many years, the the kind of guy who has fought the hard-fought battle of temptation and has walked that steady line, seeking to be faithful with God, seeking to be honest and upright as best as he can. Not only that, Job is considered to be a great man. You see about all the animals, he's got a symbol of his greatness. He is considered one of the greatest men of the East. And he's clearly part of a close-knit family. Verse 4, his family seem to meet together regularly um, just to, to get together, to have fun together, to have fellowship together. And look at what Job does for his children. See, Job loves his children. He cares about his children. In verse 5, we see what what Job does. He sacrifices for his children because he is worried that in their hearts they may have cursed God. He cares about his children's spiritual well-being. He wants his children's inward thoughts to match their outward actions because that's what Job is like. His inside matches his outside. And interestingly, it's very interesting, we see Job here performing the role and the function of an Old Testament priest. He is offering sacrifices for his children. He has kind of got an intercessory role for his children and God. He knows that sin is serious. The the whole offering of sacrifices was a common Old Testament practice of worship. It was to show the people that sin was serious, that it had to be punished, that it had to be atoned for. And Job knows that because he is a good, godly man. Every time he sacrificed for his children, he would be reminded of the severity of sin and the necessity of God's grace. So here we are. This is Job. We are presented with a good man, a godly man, a man full of honesty, integrity. In many ways, Job is a unique human being. Keep that in the back of your minds. There's something about Job's innocence and Job's integrity that seems to set him apart from others, which is why God boasts about Job. Certainly, God seems to to think that Job is a great man. Twice we see that. Chapter 1, verse 8, Job says, God says, look at my servant Job. Is there anyone like him? Blameless and upright. Chapter 2, verse 3, God again praises Job for his character. And that is what makes this book so shocking. And that's what makes what happens to Job so shocking. 
Here's what we can learn just from looking at these first five verses, these first opening verses of Job. Suffering is not often a result of what we have done. There is no such thing. There's no such thing as karma. And I know this. Some of the most godly and some of the most upright people I know are those who have gone through the most horrendous ordeals. I'm sure there are people here in front of me in this church who are a testimony to that also. And we need to recognize that because if we have lived a life in which we, we have strived so hard to be faithful to God, and we suddenly find ourselves going through a horrendous ordeal, we can be tempted to think, why me? What, God, what have I done to deserve this? Where, where did I go wrong? And the book of Job tells us that suffering is not always some punishment from God for us doing wrong. In fact, often suffering can come when we're doing everything right in God's eyes. This is what I want to convince you of this evening. You can walk faithfully with Jesus all your life. And it may be, it may be that God will lead you to a point of such darkness and pain that you will wish that you had never existed. And I'm not exaggerating because that's what happens to this man. And the question we ask, the question Job asks for 40 chapters is why? Why would God do something like that? And I don't... (laughs) I don't know if we can answer that. And part of the wisdom of the book of Job is to not give pat answers to the why question of suffering. But maybe the rest of this chapter might help us to shed a little bit of light and a little bit of understanding. Second point I want us to see, the test of Job's suffering. These opening chapters of Job, you'll notice they flick between two scenes, what happens on earth and what happens on heaven. Uh, If this was a a kind of stage production, you would have the idyllic um, earth scene that we've seen already in chapters 1 to 5. You might have that over on the right-hand side of the stage, and then the lights would dim on that scene, and the lights would come up on this side of the stage as we get an insight into the heavenly scene. And what the book does is it fluctuates between these two scenes. And in chapter 1, verse 6, the lights light up on the left-hand side of the stage, and we move to the heavenly scene. Now, these verses are fascinating because they reveal to us something essential about how this world is run. And that, that is a real key question when we reflect on the, the nature of suffering. How is a world where the innocent suffer, governed. So we see this here, chapter 1, verse 6, the the sons of God, which is another term for for the angels of God, they they are summoned before him. We're getting an insight here into it's kind of like a, a heavenly cabinet meeting. God runs the world. God controls it. He governs it through angelic beings. That's how God functions. And the author makes clear that among them is Satan. Uh, Literally in Hebrew, it's the Satan, which is a a Hebrew term that means the accuser or the uh, adversary. And it seems that that Satan is not just kind of wandered in here, that he's not snuck into this cabinet meeting. It seems, the author seems to be implying that Satan is part of this. He is part of God's governance. We, We don't know how, we don't know why he is there, 
But here's the point the author is trying to make to us, that the adversary, the author of all evil, the tempter and the accuser, is ultimately answerable to God. He cannot function on his own. Satan is not God's opposite. This kind of thinking, uh, this is a, a dangerous way of thinking. Christians often fall into this. It's what's called dualism, the idea that God and Satan are somehow at war with each other, and we don't know what the outcome will be. Sometimes Satan seems to be doing well. Sometimes God seems to be doing well. Uh, Job chapter 1 blows that notion apart. That's not how the world's governed. The Satan is a small created being who cannot act except upon God's authority. And all that happens to Job, therefore, happens only because God permits it to happen. Evil is under God's control. Satan is on a leash. The devil is, as Martin Luther said, God's devil. God didn't create the world and then just step back and let it unfold. He governs the world. He controls the world. And interestingly, as we read through the book of Job, that is a point that is never up for debate. Next week, we're going to meet Job's friends. And in some regards, Job's friends just have terrible theology. But even Job's friends understand that God is in charge. Job himself understands that God is in charge. And when God comes and speaks to Job, he reminds him that he is in charge and that he is in control of all things. We have to see this. This is is difficult stuff. This is hard. But it's absolutely essential. God governs all things. And then this is the statement, God issues, which triggers off the whole events of the book of Job. Satan talks about, um, God asks him where he's been. He says, basically, he's kind of like like a moody teenager. Oh, you know, doing this and that. Uh, He doesn't explain. He's wandering about on the earth, probably trying to cause disruption. And then God says, well, look, it's my servant Job. God essentially says to him here, in your travels abroad the earth to try and discredit my creation, to try and cause evil, have you considered this man Job? He is unique, one who fears me, one who loves me. And then Satan responds. Look at how he responds. He responds basically by saying, well, look, of course Job loves you. Of course Job fears you. You've given him lots of stuff. He's got a nice house. He's got a loving family. He's got a wealthy inheritance. You've hedged him in, God. You've hedged him in away from the realities of this world. But I guarantee you, if you were to take all that from Job, he wouldn't love you. He'd curse you to your face. Satan's saying to God, this is what he's saying, look, people don't care about you. They only care about what they can get from you. No one actually cares about who you are. When push comes to shove, he'll turn his back on you. And that's the challenge that Satan offers. And the shocking thing is, God agrees to this challenge. And then the lights dim on the heavenly scene and we come back to the earth scene to Job where we see Satan strike down Job's wealth, Job's servants, Job's estate, and worse of all, Job's children. But Job still maintains his integrity. And then the lights go back up on the heavenly court in chapter 2, verse 1 to 7. And Satan says, well, if his life was threatened, then he would curse you. 
Then back to the earthly scene, and we see Satan afflict Job with this horrible skin disease. Where do we leave Job? On top of a pile of ash, scraping himself with pottery. And we read this, and we look at what God's doing, and we think, what are you doing? This man, he's lost his children. Why are you letting Satan have another go at him? Why are you playing games with his life? Isn't this absolutely shocking? It is shocking. But there are a few things I think we really need to take note of. We, we, we need to grasp if we are to understand what's happening here and we understand the book of Job. Firstly, in Satan's accusation, God's character and the character of Job himself actually are being slighted. What's at stake here? is the glory and the honor of God. And I think that's a very important point, difficult point, but important point to get. The glory of God is more important than anything else in the universe. The glory of God is even more important than our own personal comforts. And that has to be true. That has to be true for God to be God. He must glorify that which is most glorious. And if that is not himself, there would be something greater and something more important than him, and that would be God. But we must also recognize that there is not to be a dividing line between the glory of God and the ultimate benefit for humanity. You see, when God is glorified, that is when the universe is functioning properly. That is when the universe is put to rights. When God is glorified, we are the ones who are benefit. When God is glorified, humanity is saved. And the greatest act of glory, the cross of Jesus, is a testimony to that truth. Secondly, what happens to Job here will help him to understand the genuineness of his faith in God and will be used to help countless hundreds of thousands, millions of Christians throughout the ages. Now, Job doesn't see that here. He doesn't see that. But he will. You know, there's something, Satan's accusation, there's something in Satan's accusation that is absolutely bang on. See, although Satan's intentions, his intentions are, are wholly evil and malicious and corrupt, but there's something logical about what he says. Maybe Christians don't actually care about God. Maybe they do just follow him when they've got lots of nice stuff, when things are going well in life. And it's sad to say, but there are people who are like that, quite happy to follow God when their lives are going well. But as soon as anything comes along, when suffering comes along, when the things that they truly love most in this world are removed, they abandon God. They essentially marry God for his money. They want the blessing, but they don't want him. But Satan, this is the problem with Satan. Satan does not know God's power. Satan does not believe in love. He is the ultimate cynic. And when he comes, when the Satan comes with this accusation, he doesn't realize that he's just putting a nail into his own coffin. God only gives Satan enough rope here to hang himself because true followers of God and of Jesus, they want God for himself, not what he can give them. 
and Job and countless others throughout the ages. People in this church are a testimony to that truth. Do you see, Job's endurance will be the devil's downfall. And God permits suffering often to help us and to help others see that what we have, that the faith that we have is real and substantial and powerful. Uh, People often think, when we talk about suffering and God's control of it, people often think, well, you see, if God told me why, exactly why I was suffering, then it'd be fine. I'd be okay. But it wouldn't because Satan's accusation would still stand, would it not? If I knew that I was going to get something out of my suffering, am I still wanting God for himself or am I wanting what actually God's going to give me through this? God lets suffering happen not to destroy our faith, but to make it more real and to make it more substantial. And there is nothing, nothing more precious in your life as a Christian and your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Turn forward with me to 1 Peter. This is not just a thing from Job. 1 Peter chapter 1. Um, This is uh, a principle that's carried all throughout the Bible, which Peter picks up on here in 1 Peter chapter 1. I'm sorry I don't have a church Bible, so uh, I don't know the number um, of the page, but it's 1 Peter chapter 1. Just looking at what Peter says. Now, Peter writes to to Christians who are really in the midst of suffering here. And this is what he says to them. He's just been talking about the glorious salvation that they have guaranteed for them through Jesus Christ. 1 Peter chapter 1 verse 6. In this, in that glorious salvation, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with the joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory You see, when the Christian who goes through deep trials and sufferings can still say through tears, with all sincerity, Jesus, I love you. I want to follow you. I feel far from you, but I still want you. Then we drive that nail deeper into Satan's coffin and bring glory to God's name. To have that faith, to have the faith of Job, to be able to say, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That is a precious thing. That is more precious than all the gold of the world. And again, I know there's people in this church who have done that. Struck yesterday, Rob mentioned uh, it was Ed's funeral. Ed was an elder of this church who served here for a long time. And he wasn't a perfect man. He was a sinful man like all of us. But to the end, he held on to the grace of Jesus. And therefore, he trampled underfoot the cynicism of Satan that says you're only in it for what God can give you and brought glory to his name. You see, suffering is never, ever, ever, ever pointless if you're a follower of Jesus. Never. We may never know why. In fact, do you notice this? Do you notice nobody tells Job why? If, if you read the book of Job, e- even at the end, 
when God comes down, when God speaks to Job, God doesn't tell him. Job never finds out why he is suffering. It all seems so senseless. We can see how it worked out for Job because we've got the whole book. We're, we're peering behind the curtain. We're having a glimpse into this kind of heavenly reality that Job does not see. See, we don't know why God allows suffering to happen often in our lives. We often can't see the purpose. We can't see the big picture. But all we have to hold on to, all Job had to hold on to, was God's character. Can we trust him? That is the big question. Can we trust God? Maybe there is a big picture that he can see from beginning to end as the infinite creator of all that we cannot see, that Job could not see. There is hope. But we can't leave it there. And it's important we don't leave it there because actually that's not where Job is. Job does not see a big picture. Job does not recognize any purpose to what has happened to him. All he can voice, all he can experience is a hellish pain that seems inescapable. And get your head into what this man experienced. Uh, I've been reading this book for uh, over a month trying to understand something of what Job felt. And, and it's, it's heartbreaking to think about what he must have experienced. Chapter uh, 1, verse 13, just begins like any ordinary day for Job. Just like on the morning of September the 11th, 2001, when the people of New York just went around their daily business. Just a normal day, and then disaster strikes. Can you, you, you can imagine it. Job's sitting there, a knock on his door. A policeman comes, standing there with one of Job's frightened servants. And the color starts to drain from Job's face. Something's not right. Something's gone wrong here. Job hears about how some of his servants have been killed. And then another knock at the door. Another servant. Job hears about how his livestock has been wiped out. Job's whole livelihood has been wrecked in an instant. And then he gets the most painful news about his children. You see, Job has felt the anxiety of losing his job. He's felt the burden of having his livelihood destroyed, his income ruined. Devastatingly, Job has suffered one of the greatest anguishes anyone can ever experience, the loss of their children. We saw that in chapter 1. He loved, he cared for them. Job has been where some of you have been here, worried about his medical condition, Some of you waiting for that diagnosis from the doctor, fearful of the results. Job has had that debilitating medical condition which has made him repulsive to others around about him. He's facing facing emotional, spiritual, and physical anguish, and he doesn't flippantly declare in the face of suffering, well, I know it's going to be okay in the end. He doesn't because he doesn't feel that. And if he did, imagine he said that. Imagine that's what we read. Job wouldn't be real to us, would he? To go through all that. He tears his robe. He shaves his head as a symbol of mourning. Verse 8 of chapter 2. There we see him. He's sitting on a pile of ash. This is literally a reference to the rubbish dump outside the city, which we learn later on from what Job says. He was ostracized by everyone in that city. They probably saw him as as a kind of omen of bad luck. Even his own wife was repulsed by him. 
And so he's sitting on this rubbish dump. He's covered in painful sores. And he's cutting himself with a bit of broken pottery to try and ease the pain of his skin disease. He has nothing. And turn with me to Job chapter 3 and look at what he says. This is the beginning of the poetry. Job chapter 3, Job sits. His friends come and join him. After this, Job opened his mouth and he cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born. And the night that said a man is conceived, let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. And Job's saying there in that poem, look, I wish... I wish with all my heart that I had never been born. I curse the day of my birth. I wish I'd never been brought into existence. Then look down at how he finishes that speech in verse 25. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest. Trouble comes. This is dark. This is not a feeling of comfort or inner peace. There is no light, just painful, isolating darkness. Job's saying, I'm all alone. I feel so alone. I feel so empty. I can't eat. I can't sleep. I can't find any rest. I'm in a state of torment. I'm in a state of fear. It just doesn't seem to be anything worthwhile in my life anymore. And it's extreme. And some of you will maybe not get to this point, but maybe some of you will. And part of the wisdom of the book of Job is to recognize that it's okay to feel like that as a Christian. It's okay sometimes to feel utterly cold and empty and lost. And it may be you hear, you may come to church fearful that people will see the pain that you might be carrying, how empty you feel. The songs that we sing, they seem so triumphant and you may feel hypocritical and lost. How can I sing that? Everyone here seems to have it all together in their lives. My brothers and sisters, if that is you, let me tell you, no one has it together. We are a broken people despite the veneer we may often hide behind, to mourn suffering, to feel empty and to feel hurt is not a bad thing. Sometimes it's the only appropriate wise response to the brokenness that has afflicted you. It's okay. It's okay to be like this, to feel no comfort. And here's what you can learn from Job. Hold fast hold on, even if it feels that you are holding on by your fingertips to God's grace. Hold on, for it is not in vain that you endure through the darkness. This is not the end. This is the beginning of the book of Job. The stuff uh, that I've said this evening, the stuff that's come up in these opening chapters that we need to wrestle through, God in His wisdom did not give us three chapters to the book of Job. He gave us 40 chapters because this is a complex issue that we need to wrestle through together. And there is hope. Do you notice that Job just cannot escape God, even if it probably feels like he wants to. He 
cannot escape God. You see, without God, without God, suffering is completely pointless. And there is no hope. But we have a better reason to trust God than Job ever could. And this is how I want to close off this evening, very briefly. And this is how we'll close off every evening looking at the book of Job. Job is a real man. And this really happened to him. But he is nevertheless a prophetic picture of a greater man. A man who really was innocent. A man who'd never done anything wrong, not even in his heart. Job didn't curse, didn't sin with his lips, but he did sin with his heart. This man was perfect. The prophet Isaiah prophesied his coming, saying that he would be known as a man of sorrows, one who was acquainted with grief. And this man would be struck by God in a way that no human being has ever been struck by God. And yet through his suffering, humanity would be saved for all eternity and the devil would be overthrown forever. You see, the Lord Jesus Christ is the true innocent, the true obedient, suffering servant of God. And when we read Job, we must see in Job's sufferings not just counsel for ourselves. We must see that, but not just that. But we must see our God and Savior, Jesus. Like Job, Jesus had no inner peace. Like Job, Jesus felt this darkness as he was crucified for our sins, as he was punished on the cross by God the Father, punished for all our wrongdoing. Jesus let out the blood-curdling cry, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's not something he felt, it's something that happened to him. That is the cry of the Son of God. Now, do you see what that means? If you're suffering, this changes everything. God has suffered. If I can quote the author uh, Dorothy Sayers, whatever game God is playing with his creation, he has had the honesty and the integrity to take his own medicine. Changes everything because there is no pit of despair that we are in that he has himself not sunk to. No darkness, no isolation, no tears that he has himself not experienced experienced to, to degrees infinitely greater than we could ever experience. You see, we may feel abandoned by God in times of difficulty, but we can know with certainty that we're not because Jesus was. Brothers and sisters, look at Job and look at his suffering and see in it the suffering of Christ for you. Job was like a priest. Jesus is our high priest. One who has been in the darkest valleys, one who can sympathize with our every weakness, and he knows your pain here. So hold on to him. Keep knocking on his door as Job does, even if it feels like he's not there, even if it feels like he's just shut himself away from you. Hold on to the cross of Jesus because that is our only hope. Let me pray. Father, thank you for the wisdom of this book. Father, do again pray you would help us to apply this wisdom. I pray for those who might be here who can sympathize maybe with what Job has said, who have felt that, who have felt the restlessness of suffering, the fear of suffering, 
the disquiet of it, the torment and the agony. I pray, Father, that you would help us to hold on. And in doing so, Lord, may you be given all the glory. Father, for those of us who will suffer, help us to remember these important lessons so that we can prove the genuineness of our faith, so that we can drive a nail into the coffin of Satan and trample underfoot his cynicism. Father, help us to genuinely want Christ for who he is and not just what he can give. Give us certainty, Lord, and if suffering is what we need for certainty, we pray that you would help us to endure through it so that like Job, our faith will be refined like gold passing through fire. Father, we pray all this in the name of your Son who has suffered unimaginable amounts of torment for us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on him and his pain as well as ours. Pray this in his name. Amen. Well, what do you sing when you read Job? What does uh, a miserable Christian sing? Because that's an important question, and God in his wisdom has provided the answer to that. The book of Psalms is a very important book for the church. It has been throughout the ages. Because sometimes we can't sing songs that are so triumphant. Sometimes we need to sing laments as Christian. We have just left Job on a rubbish heap, cutting himself with pottery. And it's important that we sing and voice some of the feelings, perhaps, that Job himself was feeling. But actually, we're going to sing this psalm, Psalm 22. And as we sing it, we think not just about what we can say to God, because the psalms are are songs that are like prayers we sing to God. We think about um, Jesus. This was the psalm that he would have sung many times. And it's the psalm that's ultimately about him. And this is the psalm he had on his lips as he was suffering on the cross. And so as we sing this, we are reminded of our Savior who suffered for us. So what we're going to do, because we've not sung this and because the tune won't be familiar, if we can just put up the first verse of the psalm. Um, The band's going to sing the first verse. uh, And we'll just remain seated whilst they sing the first verse. And then we'll all stand together and sing this psalm together.
Help us again to apply the wisdom of Job. Help us to trust you and to hold on to you. We know that our fathers were not put to shame. Our forefather Job who held on to you. We can look at his example. So help us to endure. And so we pray, Lord, that your love and the grace of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, the suffering servant, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with us now. Always. Amen.